Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that delivers the show that markets expect. No, sorry. Sorry, I said that wrong. I mean, Mark expects. That's our one listener. Hello, Mark. I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week, as Prime Minister and millionaire short-ass frowny, Rishi Sunak warns that we'll suffer if we don't all pay more tax. I mean, is that right? His wife didn't pay any for ages, and she seems to be having a great time. There is a real run of comeback gigs happening right now in the UK. Bands like Pulp and Blur are announcing huge shows for next summer where they'll no doubt play all their greatest hits of the 90s while their fans, myself included, spend money they don't have on extortionate tickets in the hope of recapturing that time when, you know, we actually enjoyed things and then we'll all jump around for 30 seconds, realise everything hurts and understand that maybe it's not quite the same as it was. And wouldn't it be much better if this gig was seated and indoors? In politics, the returns of well-known names are far less exciting, but probably far more costly, whether that's in financially or mentally exhaustive terms. One of these names that's returned recently is cold stare of a man who consumes only bath salts, George Osborne, one of the engineers of austerity, if you can call it engineering when all you've done is stop things from working. Sometimes he's been called in the press the architect of austerity, failing to understand that architects make designs for construction, not destruction. If someone had trusted George Osborne to design their home, it would be likely that they'd arrive to the site to discover merely a smouldering heap of rubble that still somehow managed to avoid having any mobility access points. After helping run down the country to its bare bones in his time as Chancellor, George Osborne has now been called back in to see if there's any marrow to extract from the inside of them, or perhaps if the joints can be used for some expensive furniture or cheese tools for the very rich. Current Chancellor and who gave MDMA to that spaghetti, Jeremy Hunt, sought his old colleague's advice when putting together his autumn fiscal plan, or full-size budget, or red lunchbox of doom, or bunch of cuts horror show, or whatever it is that you'd like to call it, that will be happening this Thursday. What useful guidance could the man who looks like he's been bathing in cocaine give to the man who resembles someone that's constantly struggling with debt perception? Is he likely to help balance the economy when he's personally seemed as balanced as Patrick Bateman since he upgraded from folding towels to start in politics? Maybe George Osborne's advice to Jeremy Hunt will just be, it doesn't matter if everyone hates you and you get booed at the Paralympics. Once you leave, people will realise you have created job growth after all, even if it's just the 12 you'll get for yourself. 
and then years later some other shit chancellor will pay you to tell him exactly the same thing while figuring out how to convince people that doing exactly the same stuff that helped get us into this terrible financial situation will definitely, definitely work this time around. I mean, it is substantially George Osborne's mess, so I suppose getting him in to advise how to clean it up makes some sense. You know, if it wasn't the experience shows us, it's the rest of us that have to do it for even less pay than before. The reality is, asking George Osborne to help Jeremy Hunt with his budget is a lot like asking an arsonist for tips on the best way to convince people that what these burned ashes really need for regrowth is a flamethrower distributed over them, followed by flipping the bird at its remains as you do lines off the back of your own business card that has more titles on it than a Pirates of the Caribbean sequel and is even less wanted. The budget, which may or may not have happened by the time you hear this, will deliver the financials the markets expect. So says the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and thank God someone's finally thinking of the markets. I mean, it did worry me that here we are complaining about how you have to take out a loan to buy some butter, but all the while no one seemed to be putting the preferences of some very rich men in suit to change countries' futures based on how emotional they're feeling that day. Our public finances are going to be on a sustainable trajectory, apparently, which is because we're all going to have to pay a bit more tax. And no one minds that, right? I mean, taxes fund our public services that we need, and by us all paying more, we are getting the benefits of all those services being cut and run into the ground. Hang on. What kind of deal is this? I've seen better offers from Scamtex telling me I've got an HMRC refund if I only click this link to a website based in China. I mean, look, hey, HMRC have branches everywhere, and at least if this goes wrong, I'll only lose my money and not all the NHS's as well. There will be spending cuts of £35 billion and plans to raise £20 billion in tax, which will apparently fill the Treasury black hole that, much like a real black hole, you can only see if you use a bunch of very specific methods that, unlike a real black hole, aren't actually the best ones scientists would use. This Treasury space phenomenon can only be seen and indeed understood if you stare at public finances through special corrective lenses that remove all inequalities. It's a shame that we'll have to spend so much to deal with something that isn't there and won't help us at all, when really Rishi Sunak could have just not written off £33 billion of Covid-related losses, or the £37 billion for Track and Trace which failed, or even things like the Royal Yacht that's now been cancelled but only after £2.5 million was spent on it. I can't help but feel that this is the way to fix the economy, in the same way a child would insist the best way to help them go to bed is if they neck that candy floss and watch TV until 10pm. The Royal College of Nursing, whose members will be going on strike for the first time in history, have been told by the Health Secretary and... No, actually, no, sorry, I can't... I can't remember who it is. Hang on. Steve... Steve Barkley? No. No, it's gone again. Stu Parkley? No, sorry, everyone. It's someone. There definitely is one. He's so forgettable. Um, Anyway, that, whoever it is, they told nurses that the 17% pay rise they've asked for would cause inflation and help no one. You know, not even the nurses that would be able to use it to eat and survive wouldn't help them at all. But how would they enjoy that food, knowing that their money that they'd be putting back into the economy won't actually help remove the imaginary black hole, whereas the NHS being reduced to nothing but a three-day wait to enter a tent where you can have a plaster and a glass of water, that is going to benefit us all. I must admit, it is all tricky when you don't understand economics like me, and people like Sunak who get it so much he keeps losing money, and Jeremy Hunt who understands it so much he forgot all the luxury flats he bought on the south coast they do definitely understand it and i'm sure that like the chancellor says they will do what they can to make this recession as short and as shallow as possible which is funny as that's also exactly how i describe our prime minister 
What will also help our finances is the £63 million we're giving to France to help tackle the dangerous border crossings taken by asylum seekers. You know, the ones that are dangerous because we refuse to put a processing centre at Calais or have any sort of safe routes to the UK. And then when people get here, they're put into unsafe housing for years and Conservative MPs stand outside where they're staying, encouraging people to firebomb them. Those ones. Money would be better spent paying France to be our sponsor, and every time we think about spending vast amounts of money making everything worse for both asylum seekers and immigration figures, we could call them and they'd say, No, be strong. Spend that money on actually making the application scheme easier, or keep it to use yourself, and then you won't need to degrade yourself selling weapons to the regimes they're fleeing from in the first place. You can do this, Britain. You can do this. Except, you know, they're actually say that in French and with a French accent. And because it would be in French and in a French accent, we wouldn't make any attempt to understand. We'd just point and shout loudly in English and it would all be pointless. This money will go to more border patrols, more drones and even more night vision goggles. So, you know, the British government won't miss scowling at people in desperate circumstances, even when it gets dark. How is the Home Secretary and star of the Land Before Time, Suella Bravman, meant to know exactly where to dive into the channel and pull dinghies underwater with her bare hands when she patrols the beaches at night, sniffing the air for signs of invaders, unless she's got night vision goggles to know exactly where they are? The UK has already given France £175 million since 2018 to deter border crossings, and of course since then numbers have gone up and it's not really done anything to help, as it's clearly our system that's broken, not theirs, but hey, why wouldn't they take our cash for doing very little and occasionally go, oh yes, we are working hard, here have some goggles and leave us alone. 75% of people that apply for asylum in the UK are accepted, and even more go through after appeals. So all this plan really is doing is putting cash into a shredder during a recession, while popping spike strips on the road out of spite to make sure the last leg of the marathon to survival for many people is even harder. This new deal with France might not even be legal, something that Suella Bravman should know, as you know, she once saw an old episode of Perry Mason on the TV. As it's currently just an 843 vaguely worded document, and most of those are the Home Secretary typing, bring me that girl and that dog, I don't care what you do with the rest of them, fly, fly, surrounded by droppings of mouth froth. What exactly are we paying France for then? Oh wait, I know, it's so we can go, well that's France's fault, when absolutely nothing changes, isn't it? Rishi Sunak said he was confident the crossings could be brought down in number, but there was no one thing they could do to fix the situation. No, that's right, Rishi. There are actually several things, and you're not doing any of them, which makes you even more useless. If only it was markets coming across on the boats in the hope for better life, then I bet the government would be clambering over each other to haul them in. But unfortunately, you know, it's just human beings, and all those bastards do is cause inflation by wanting to eat and stay alive. What Suella Bravman doesn't realise, as it's hard to see clearly through those night vision goggles, is that a safe route to the UK for asylum seekers would fix so many of these problems and also would automatically reduce inflation as there'd be no need for quite so many dinghies. Maybe it's not comebacks as such that we're seeing in politics, but second chances, because this government are all about that, aren't they? You know, whether it was for Suella Bravman or the deal with France or austerity or George Osborne, not refugees, or indeed Eugene Toombs looks ill, Gavin Williamson. Well, more of a second, second chance for him, which is what anyone deserves after only purposefully leaking highly confidential details of a meeting and being the worst education secretary in history. It is only right that Rishi Sunak and his government of integrity would let Williamson have some vague role that they then have to leave again due to accusations of bullying. Not just a few accusations either, but absolutely loads, as it seems Williamson had spent most of his time in Parliament just walking the halls making threats, which explains why he didn't manage to do any of the job he was meant to, and likely told people he'd see them by the gates after school if they dared grass him up. 
One senior civil servant reported that Gavin Williamson told them to slit your throat and another to jump out of the window, which is horrendous as everyone knows the government can only use that language on people in poverty and refugees. Williamson seemingly resigned of his own accord, though we can all actually hope that he was bullied out of office, saying that he wants to comply with the complaints process and clear his name, which I guess he'll do by threatening anyone who says anything mean about him and he'll really lose his shit with whoever wrote that he's a big bully on the Commons toilet cubicle doors. Maybe now future governments will think twice about hiring Williamson for anything ever again, though it's more likely he'll get a second, second, second chance and have at least 15 more cabinet roles of decreasing duty until someone stands up to him, pulls his pants down in the canteen in front of everyone and he has to leave to start again in another area. But then rumours have since appeared about Justice Secretary, Deputy Prime Minister and man who clearly tumble dries his skin on too high a setting, Dominic Raab. It turns out he's a big old bully too, which makes you wonder if Sunak is either the nerdy maths kid that buys off the big kids to protect him, or more likely a twerp who got harassed into hiring them all or they'd flush his head down the toilet again. When he was made Justice Secretary for a second time, apparently Ministry of Justice staff were given an out so they wouldn't have to work under Raab's wrath. There's three A's in both of those. Stories came out about him throwing the tomatoes from a pret salad across the table at them, which isn't how you encourage staff to catch up with what you're saying. Yes, I said that. I'm not sorry. Sunak says he doesn't recognise the claims against Rob, which might be like when a witness has been intimidated, so picks the wrong person out of a lineup on purpose. Will Rob, like Williamson, have to step down, or will he just throw salad everywhere, insisting he's turning over a new leaf? Is Sunak's cabinet just all full of bullies and what happens when they start to bully each other? Will they all have to ignore themselves or worse, join together to bully the country? Oh wait, no, no, that's already already been happening for years now. The opposition is showing the government though just how to tackle bullying within their party and that is by following their tradition for everything and doing nothing about it. Shadow Health Secretary, and if you asked an AI to merge the top of a pencil and a Toby jug, Wes Streeting, was heard in the Commons referring to ex-party leader and who could play most of the characters in a live-action Winnie the Pooh film, Jeremy Corbyn, as senile. Not a great term for someone to say who's also in charge of policies for those who suffer from dementia and other memory-affecting conditions, but maybe this is just Labour's health policy. You know, they'll scrap funding to the NHS because instead Wes Streeting will just go out and shout derogatory conditions at people and then they won't have to see a doctor for the diagnosis instead. Corbyn was addressing Rishi Sunak bringing him up for the millionth time at PMQs, which the party have decided to deal with by making big announcements that Corbyn will never ever stand for them ever again. It's amazing watching someone as unskilled in communication as Rishi Sunak play the opposition like Derren Brown moulding clay. The Prime Minister keeps bringing up a leader they've not had for three years and who's had the whip removed and rather than realise they're being played, Labour divert all attention to the fact they're still more bothered by Jeremy Corbyn than Tory policies. Some have suggested that leader and what if West Streeting had liver mortis Keir Starmer should step in and remove Corbyn from the Labour Party altogether as he still retains membership. But of course, that would be a leader interfering with disciplinary procedures and a breach of the EHRC code, which would then mean he'd need the whip removed from himself. Rishi Sunak would just keep bringing Starmer up to whoever the next leader was and then the cycle would continue. Bullying, name-calling and making decisions entirely because of peer pressure. I'm starting to wonder if they need to replace the speaker in the Commons with a strict teacher and have all the MPs' parents come in for a meeting. The other political comeback that hasn't gone as well as planned is that of former Health Secretary and what if a minion fucked one of HR Geiger's aliens, Matt Hancock, who made his debut on ITV's I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here last week where he told the gaggle of people given the title of celebrity because, well, there's little other way to describe such a lack of personality or purpose that all he was looking for was forgiveness for breaching the Covid rules that he made. But he didn't at all mention forgiveness for letting all those elderly people in care homes die, so I guess he's really cool about that bit. 
Hancock has had to endure various grim trials such as eating a camel's penis, but he probably didn't find that all that difficult after the many years he spent regurgitating bullshit and licking boots. Quite some effort was spent getting the other contestants meals, even though he could never be asked voting so schoolchildren had any, and I suppose the other celebs should really be pleased there's no footballer on this year's show, or Matt Hancock would just berate them for trying to do anything to help. And then on the weekend, Hancock had to be rushed off to the show's medic because he was bitten by a poisonous scorpion, who'd obviously tried to do more for the British public than anyone else, and really should be knighted. I was hoping Hancock would be released early in order for the hospital to free up beds and then be sent back to the camp ill, but I suppose I should at least be pleased he's not been given the appropriate protective gear to survive out there, and hopefully it will happen again very, very soon. In an ideal world, not only would Matt Hancock be eating camel's dick and being bitten by scorpions, but also it wouldn't be televised, as he clearly gets kicks out of that, and he should just have to endure it in some sort of underground cell as a punishment. This is yet another shitty, shitty man that doesn't deserve any sort of a comeback, unless that's just part of yet another challenge, where he has to deal with a sexually frustrated and very angry gorilla. In other news, former Chancellor and glasses on a snooker ball, Quasi Kwarteng, blamed former Prime Minister and small dog on a playground roundabout, Liz Truss, for, well, everything, complaining that he told her she was going too fast, which, based on rumours about those two, is imagery absolutely none of us needed. Inflatable clown Bot Bag and Conservative MP Mark Francois was condemned for using an outdated racist slur in the Commons, which is so stupid of him, as if he'd just used a more modern one, they'd have let him off, as that might have really appealed to young Conservative voters. And a list of voter ID that will be needed for the next elections has been revealed, largely discriminating against younger people. If you don't have any identification, but you are keen to have your influence on British politics, then may I suggest becoming a Tory party donor, as they really don't do any checks on those at all. And lastly, in the US midterm elections, the Republicans failed to achieve the red wave that they said they'd have, unless of course they meant it as some sort of way to say goodbye. The Democrats took control of the Senate, and while the votes for the House are still coming in, it's looking a lot closer than was predicted by pollsters. The main upset, apart from that of all the crying red hat MAGA bros, was that many Republican candidates that backed former President and overgrown teratoma Donald Trump lost their race, proving that perhaps now we should be referring to his type of politics as unpopulism. This is the third election where Trump has cost the Republican seats, but there's still a chance he's going to try to run for president again in 2024, and I say let him, as we all need a really good laugh. Many Republican voters didn't vote as they'd been told by Trump and his gang that voting was rigged, meaning that maybe some of their bullshit lying was beneficial to the country after all. Young voters voted overwhelmingly for the Democrats and cancelled out the votes of the over 65s, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade being a big factor. Ha <laughs> ha, take that anti-abortion activists, must be absolutely gutting for you that when kids are born, they grow up and vote against you. What, what, how goes it, Parpol Bruds? Uh, sort of bitty old week of news, isn't it? And no doubt one that from Thursday when the autumn budget financial statement fiscal doodah is announced, it'll all be up in the air again and this will become untopical. Um, how are you faring with the news at the moment? Like, a lot of you are starting to listen to this earlier in the week, um, and hopefully hopefully that's working out. This week's got an interview that might outlast, well, it'll outlast the British news anyway, maybe. Um, I hope you're all doing okay. I have uh, actually not been watching the news very much this past week. One of the bonuses of Twitter sort of disappearing, which I'll talk about in a minute. I mean, it hasn't disappeared, but I've just not been reading it as much. I've not been logging in as much, which means just generally not taking in the news. I'd forgotten it was Remembrance Day this past weekend, which is 
probably quite gutting considering the title um my agent sorry daughter uh, actually learned all about remembrance day at school last week and she spent every day since saying we have to remember them as they all fought in a battle but then they died um which sort of sounds a bit mean doesn't it, it sounds a bit like they tried but they weren't very good uh, rather than actually sort of remembering anyone i've tried to explain a sort of more nuanced version to her of what it's all about but to absolutely no avail um i mean this is the kid who recently when we told her a squash flavor was summer fruits she very genuinely replied and some are not um so that's how that's going not much else going on to update about really apart from me being nominated for an award that gets announced this week and that is the first time that has ever happened to me so it's very exciting um i am up for an industry excellence award at the brilliant manchester animation festival uh, for the hey dougie script i wrote um the first one i did and i'm on a list with two other excellent nominees so i'm just very excited to be there really um I wanted to go along to the event as the whole festival sounds absolutely brilliant. Do check it out if you're around that way at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. goes on for the rest of the week. Um, but depressingly, I just can't afford to fork out for travel and accommodation at the moment, which is a bit sad. Uh, at the same day as well, I'll be teaching kids in Essex how to do stand-up, so I'm going to have to try my best not to just drift off mid-lesson and start saying, I shouldn't even be here. I'm meant to be at an awards ceremony, you know. Definitely going to upset some seven-year-olds. Uh, Twitter has somehow survived the week despite uh, Moonface Mars base Elon Musk running it in a way that makes me not sure that he could run a bath successfully. Um, but I, so I'm going to keep plugging guest Twitter accounts on here for a while longer. But, you know, we'll see what happens. And then, I mean, if it goes under, what are we going to do? Uh, I actually find it really useful um, to follow all the politics chat for this here show and indeed find guests. So if it goes, I'm going to have to, oh God, actually do research. Mm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, what if it dies and then we have to actually go outside and talk to people instead? Awful. Really awful. Cheers muchly for returning to this sound happening and big thanks to Sam and James who donated to the Kofi this week. Um, and if you'd like to buy me a coffee at the rate I set on there years ago, I'm guessing coffees are now about 12 times as much, then please do at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or even better, support me monthly at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. But I am aware that everything right now is stupidly expensive and about to get even more so. So only do it if you can spare any change at all. Um, genuinely wondering if for Christmas I'll just have to buy people a selection of groceries as they all now cost far more than snazzy gifts anyway. Uh, here you go, have a lettuce. Um, our weekly shop is, we'd have to wrap a lettuce. It's sort of already wrapped, isn't it? Depends if the middle bit's the best bit. Anyway, um, our weekly shop is genuinely now so much that I'm worried I'm just going to have to start being like a ticket tout where I head outside and sell it all off again for a raised profit. Obviously, uh, if you can't donate, which I mean I couldn't right now, then please do consider giving this podcast a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or one of those platforms, as it hasn't had a review in ages. Nobody's reviewed the show in a very long time, and it would make me feel really smug for a whole day, or at least a little bit of one, so thank you very much, Steve. On this week's show, I am speaking to Dr. Vinicius de Carvalho about the recent elections in Brazil and what it means for them and indeed the world. Yes, that's right, a small moment of escapism from British politics as we look somewhere else that's actually had an election go really well. Will it be enjoyable or will it just make you very jealous? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Brazil is the third biggest coffee producer in the world, but a few weeks ago during their general elections, it seems they must have kept some of that back for themselves as the entire country woke up and kicked what if Dracula could age really, really badly Jair Bolsonaro out of office. Elected four years ago after a spate of corruption allegations and arrests in the Brazilian government, Bolsonaro was supposedly a radical change for the country. And he was, just, you know, not for the better. Seen as a Brazilian Trump, not just because he appears to be melting and has very concerning hair, but also because he was advised by fascist whale Steve Bannon and his far-right views were a tick box of all the worst opinions about everything, you know, homophobia, racism, anti-vaxxer, climate change denier, and also very recently he became involved in a paedophile row where, let's just say, he wasn't arguing against them. He oversaw a secret budget handing out government money to lawmakers with no oversight. Inequality in Brazil reached extreme levels and under Bolsonaro's watch, the deforestation of the Amazon increased dramatically. So yeah, not your ideal leader unless you're looking for a tour guide to dystopia. And then, in the election two weeks ago, Brazil got rid of him. Just. Bolsonaro was defeated by returning candidate Luiz Inácio or Lula da Silva, a trade unionist, former metal worker and also, well, former president. This will actually be his third stint in the role and it could have been his fourth if he hadn't been arrested before the 2018 elections on a charge that was later nullified. The perfect sort of story for a US cable channel drama in years to come called something like Prison to President, the Lula story. Uh, but jokes aside, it is actually an even better story for Brazil. He aims to bring peace and unity to the fifth biggest democracy in the world, and Lula being in power means a better chance of the world's biggest rainforest surviving. You know, an actual Amazon Prime. And of course, that means a bigger chance that we all will too. So can Brazil be unified now they've shunned their populist previous leader, or will Bolsonaro try to do a Trump and still cause division, and then ultimately lose all his colleagues their seats because, oh damn, the US midterms were really funny. And how is it that with all that coffee there, Brazilians have time to do anything rather than just constantly be near a toilet just in case? I thought it'd be good to talk to someone about an election that actually went well for once. So this week I spoke to Dr. Vinicius Di Carvalho at the King's Brazil Institute. He is the Vice Dean in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at the King's College London and he plays an active role in Brazilian studies there too. What with, well, him being Brazilian and, you know, knowing all about it. This year he created the Observatory of Democracy in Latin America with other experts on the subject and they're now carrying out a number of events and talks in real life and online too. I was very, very pleased that Vinicius had time to chat and I asked him all about what Lula's election means for Brazil and if he'll be able to unite the country and what it means for the rest of the world too. It was a fascinating and insightful chat, so I do hope you enjoy. Here is Vinicius. 
Uh, Vinicius, it's so lovely having you on the show. Thank you very much for having time to talk to me. Um, I think if we start right at the top, uh, Lula da Silva's uh, election victory um, was, I mean, quite exciting to hear about over here. What what does it mean for Brazil, um, the fifth largest democracy in the world? Does it mean that democracy in Brazil has been saved? And what has he got to deal with now? What are the obstacles he's got to face after four years of Bolsonaro's leadership? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here uh, to talking to you and your uh, and your audience there. Well, um, the first aspect of Lula's victory now it's and probably what means more it's a sort of regain a hope for the country. The last four years of Bolsonaro presidency were quite controversial in so many topics and aspects in Brazilian society and also in the interactions that Brazil have uh, has with the world. So, uh, in certain ways, there is quite a lot of hope deposit. Uh, over uh, on the top uh, or in the shoulders of Lula um, in his return as president of Brazil at this point. Um, uh, there was quite a lot of concerns about the healthy of Brazilian democracy. Um, I think the election of Lula proved that, yes, it is a democratic country. Also proves that we need to be very, very careful uh, when we talk about democracy because democracy is something to be cultivating every day. It's never... It's never we should never take for granted because uh, it's very easy to to fragilize democracy. It is a sensitive fruit. It's a sensitive construction. So um, I think what what proved this election or the full electoral process in Brazil this year is how important it is for civilian society to be engaged in defending democratic values, defending democratic institutions. And I think uh, the victory of Lula in some way represents that, uh, yes, it's not a threat, the democracy in Brazil. It is it is um, sensitive, as I said, but uh, it's still there, it's still a democratic country, and the victory represents that. Um, the biggest challenge that Lula will have, I think, ahead, especially now, after the consolidation of this, of this electoral process, it's, again, to prove that he can uh, reorganize the country or reharmonize the country. Brazil is quite divided today. It was a very narrow margin of votes that gave uh, gave the victory to Lula. Uh, still a huge part of the population voted for Bolsonaro and for the values and uh, ideas that he represents. So Lula will have a big task in governing for Brazil and not only for those who elect him. To build up this, this harmony will be a hard, difficult challenge. Also because Brazil is in a deep economic crisis, as many other countries in the world. So Lula will have this terrible, hard task of rebalance the economy, reestablish an equilibrium that will provide platforms or, or ways for Brazil to grow. Um, Brazil is, again, with high numbers of people um, uh, in poverty, uh, and depending on, on, on government support to survive. So those challenges, quite concrete challenges as well, are there on the on the desk for Lula. And you talk about harmony there. I know one of the things he's attempted to do is sort of have a mixed, a slightly politically mixed government. I know in terms of uh, economic advisors, he's had some that perhaps on the opposite end of the political spectrum to him. But it, he's got quite a lot of... Um, Promises that are going to be quite expensive uh, to, to help deal with the inequality. And I know that there's issues with whether or not those will be allowed to go through. Do you think he's going to be able to sort of manage some of the manifesto that, that he, he promised? Or is it going to be quite a challenging f- four years for him? 
Well, a manifesto is always a, an ensemble of proposals, and we'll see what's possible uh, on that manifesto. So what I want to say is that uh, the, the politics is the art of negotiation. Uh, he was elected with lots of propositions, but also there was a parliament elected that in most of the cases don't follow the same agenda as him. So Lula will have uh, an important task, he and his government, uh, to negotiate with the parliament that is not uh, totally in his favor. Uh, his party in particular made a good proportion of uh, votes, but not enough to make a majority. And the group of parties that we used to call in Portuguese Centrão, the big center parties, uh, got the, the majority of the seats on the parliament. Uh, this group is not, it's not something new. Since the redemocratization in Brazil in the, 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 the early 90s, and the parliament has been quite quite well um, defined with the left-wing parties like PT, the Lula's party, right-wing parties and the big parties or lots of parties in the center that makes the majority in the parliament. And all the governments and even Lula in his first terms as president need to negotiate with this parliament, with this diverse group, with the diverse agendas. And as I said, it's a process of negotiation that must be clear and must be also transparent uh, to prevent and to avoid issues that we had in the past uh, in Lula's government with what's called the men's salon corruption case or with the, the hidden uh, budget in Bolsonaro's uh, government now. So as much or if we manage to, to get transparent ways of negotiation with the parliament, that is very helpful for democracy and to prevent these corruption cases. And you mentioned that obviously with with Lula's previous uh, party, I, I might get this wrong, so correct me on this. It was the the previous government before Bolsonaro. There were issues with corruption. There were more. There were several government ministers went there that had to step down, or possibly, you know there were legal issues. Um, is is that are people okay with that now? Is is obviously Lula's case himself? It was overturned and it was deemed sort of not. Um, not a proper case. So are the, is the country now kind of okay with that? Have we moved on from that? Or is there going to be a lot of work to kind of regain trust in in government and, and politics? Well, um, what is important to look here is, again, in the point of view of a historical trajectory. From the redemocratization on, corruption has been uh, quite um, quite stone on the, on the shoes of uh, all governments in Brazil. The first uh, president elected um, by, by the population, a direct elected by the population after dictatorship, he was impeached two years after um, because of corruption cases. Then we had uh, the period of uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso government with lots of accusations of corruption, but nothing has been proved. And then we had Lula's government, first with the Mensalão case, what was a quite severe case of uh, systemic corruption, that end without punishment, basically. Then we had Dilma Rousseff government that she herself was not involved in corruption. But um, in that period of the government, this big scandal, the, the so-called car wash operation or Lava Jato in Portuguese, uh, the, the legal uh, uh, operation trying to, to uncover cases of corruption that drove the political agenda in Brazil and also drove um, quite a lot of negative um, perception about Lula and his party's way of government. Um, so most of the, the opposition to Lula today is 
exactly saying that how can we vote for someone who has been even arrested, even overthrown after, but arrested because of, of corruption. So this, this key of element of corruption still plays an important role here. In this election, curiously, not so much as in the previous one who elected the election of Bolsonaro, um, where uh, the, the, the corruption was actually the, the key element here. Bolsonaro came like, I am the one that doesn't do like, like this PT government has done. So this anti-corruption uh, discourse was quite strong in 2018. And this year was not so much like that. Still, many people associate Lula with the corruption, but the, especially the last years of Bolsonaro government with this, um, what we are calling here, uh, the, the, um, the hidden uh, budget, um, it's been a sort of showing some uh, dark clouds around uh, Bolsonaro's government as well. So what we are seeing is, again, a country that's still learning how to operate um, democratically in terms of negotiation with the parliament that will not depend on, um, on bribes or other sorts of corruption in order to implement policies. So there's, yeah, so there's quite a lot of work to be done there. And, and I guess, is, is there also now, you know, with Bolsonaro, one of the the big issues I understand, we had, there was a lot of misinformation, um, particularly when it came to sort of COVID, but also to do with climate change, to do with uh, prejudices. It, you know, there's a, there, well, there seemed like there was quite a lot of issues under Bolsonaro, but is there now, I'm guessing that there's going to be quite a big step for the, for, for Lula's leadership to to change that, to to get real information out there. Do you think misinformation is going to continue to be a, a problem, whether it's from sort of opposition to, to Lula or, or not? Well, I don't think uh, misinformation, disinformation, fake news, it's something that we should at this moment associate with one country, one party, one person. This is a sort of uh, way of uh, politics operating all over the world. What we, we saw in Brazil in recent years uh, around misinformation, disinformation, uh, fake news, we have seen in US, we have seen in UK, we have seen in all other countries in the world. I think uh, it's not a question of one party or one politician that will do differently, but it's something that societies need to, to discuss a lot about that, coming to terms uh, in judicial terms, in, in legal terms, also uh, uh, discuss a lot with press and with those um, actors and stakeholders that are responsible for communication. So what we are seeing here is not that, uh, well, we got over the fake news um, context uh, or misinformation or disinformation context with the election of Lula. What we have ahead is that it will continue to play like that in the politics. And if we don't create uh, serious um, uh, debates and procedures on how we will deal with information and communication, uh, we will continue to have these problems, uh, not only in Brazil, as I said, but in many other countries in the world. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely wasn't a Brazil-only problem, was it? By any means, absolutely not. Um, but it's, it's very interesting in this sort of... Uh, Bolsonaro being defeated. Obviously, I know it was a very uh, close election, which I might uh, I'll ask you about in a minute because there were issues with voting on the day, and there were you know suggestions there were a coup and, and roadblocks and other things that may have stopped people getting there. But it was still quite close. But it it seems to be a um, part of a kind of wave of of populists perhaps not being quite so popular uh, in, in a number of countries uh, as they have been in the last five or six years. It, uh, what I wondered what sort of Lula's election means for the world, not just in defeating a kind of populist leader, but also obviously, you know, he's now in charge of the Amazon rainforest, which has been a big 
global issue uh, and affects climate change. This this must mean quite a lot for Brazil and its place in in the world. Yes, um, that that's that's true, and um, we we are while we talk here, we are having also the COP twenty seven happening, mm. and um, many countries in Brazil. Uh, actually not participating officially um, as as government, but with a lot of Brazilian actors there, including um, one, one person, Marina da Silva, who supported Lula, a traditional politician in Brazil, and that is quite associated with environmental causes and the Amazonian defend, defense in Brazil. Um, we have, um, what what's the biggest difference I think here is that um, Lula is showing that we will give more attention to both the environment and the indigenous populations, the original populations of Brazil. He's proposed the creation of a minister of uh, original people to, to look at uh, the people that most of them still live in the Amazonian jungle as well. Um, and what is interesting also to mention is that Brazil has a quite strong legislation for environmental protection. Um, the, if the government managed to make this legislation to be applied to, to be verified, to be followed, we will already be doing quite a big steps um, in, in the preservation of the, the Amazonian jungle. We are seeing all the data that are coming out in recent years, how the, the, the Amazon jungle is coming to a sort of turning point in which the, the conservation or the, of the jungle will be, will be endangered indeed. So it is an urgent matter uh, to, to return resources to the conservation of the of the Amazonian jungle, but this is this will be not only a Brazilian thing. Of course, Brazil, as as the sovereign state that has a big part of the Amazonian jungle, we have other countries in the region as well, but Brazil has the biggest part. It must play a very important role in discussing the policies towards the uh, environmental conservation in the Amazon. That's something that we need to be quite conscious now. Brazil has this responsibility and has also this right because it's the sovereign state that uh, where the Amazonian jungle is. Um, and how to do that? It will be also depend a lot on these negotiations with other countries in the world and understand their role uh, in support of the conservation of the Amazon. This doesn't mean only send money to Brazil, but also rethinking the ways that uh, they are using natural resources around the world and with sort of pressure that puts in countries like Brazil, countries in development that want to emulate same levels of development of countries that uh, are really uh, champions in carbon emission around the world. It was, I mean, it's certainly a relief to hear, you know, I, I think for, for many reasons I said, but it, that definitely for environmental reasons, suddenly hear that there was someone now that is in charge that has a, a care, a care for doing something positive about it, um, especially such a vital and important place on the planet that, that needs to be saved. Um, I want to actually, I want to ask you a more sort of general question in a minute, but I, I suppose one key thing is, you know, uh, as I said, on, on election day, there were uh, supposedly, um, uh, I say this, I've only seen it via Twitter, so I don't know that the facts, that, but the, 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 there were roadblocks, there were sort of supporters of Bolsonaro who were stopping people voting, um, and now reports are saying that his supporters still won't accept his defeat. I, you know, uh, people often kind of uh, compared him to Donald Trump and Donald Trump's currently trying to make a comeback in America. Do you think we'll see Bolsonaro not giving in, trying to make a comeback, or do you think he's done for now? I think it's still too early to say something about that. Um, the transition period just started and Bolsonaro managed to to also get a quite strong position in the parliament, 
well, his party in particular is the party with the majority of seats in the parliament. His children, all of them were elected to, to representative posts, Senate, uh, deputies chamber. Um, so he, he still has a strong political force in Brazil. Um, we don't know what will happen when he finish his term. He will, he will not have any, any public position to, to be. And uh, he will be not, also not have immunity uh, in terms of law. And some people, some analysts are saying that he may need to, he may face um, a lot of uh, trials or accusations in courts. So we don't know how much um, this will play in the coming years, how much this sort of thing will uh, increase his, his popular acceptance or decrease. Um, it's, it's still very early stage to say what will be the next, uh, next move for Bolsonaro himself as president. So he's still, he's still in, in charge of the country until, until the end of December. Um, and when, when he finishes terms, we don't know what will happen and what are his movements. He has been quite silent in, in the last days, uh, especially after, after the results of the election. He used to be much more talkative and a public speaker, and we are seeing not so much engagement of himself. So it's still too early to predict what can happen and if he will return to run as president or not. Considering the support that he got in this election, I would be not surprised if he put his name again in four years' time. Has he he's officially conceded now? Am I right in saying that? Or not quite? I, I don't know. I really don't know if he's considering that or not. Yeah, because I, I, I'd read somewhere that there was a rumor that he had officially conceded uh, defeat, but there's still not official. Oh, sorry. In, sorry, the defeat, sorry, yes. yes. Defeat, yeah, well, yes. in indirect way, yes. He he didn't say, he didn't congratulate Lula for the victory, but he, he admitted in a, in a speech that the, the game is over and right. let's move on. And that started the transition process. He he accepts who will be the, the, the responsible for, for the Lula side. It's Alckmin, his vice president elected will be in charge of the transition so he admitted that yeah right that's that's good there was a there was a definitely a, a period where it didn't look like he was going to accept defeat which was i think quite concerning um i wanted to ask you know because uh brazil is uh now after a number of countries in south america that have gained sort of socialist leaders or at least sort of left-leaning leaders uh i know um was it Bolivia in 2021 elected Castillo? Um, there's obviously Maduro in Venezuela. Is is there a? It's been called a sort of a pink tide in Latin America. Um, has is 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 Latin America tilting towards socialism? Um, you know, obviously the election results in Brazil were quite close. So is is it as easy to say as actually it's suddenly becoming a, a socialist continent, or is that um, is it still very divided? Um, I will be very careful in use term socialist here. I think uh, those words, uh, socialism or left wing or right wing, uh, they are um, extremely, they are extremely full of um, semantic misunderstandings, and that drives to wrong conclusions when you use use them. Um, what we could say is that all those governments that are now uh, begin in Latin America, and you mentioned some, I w- we could include Chile as well. We could include Peru if you want. They represent that uh, some new leaders are coming, or some some of those not so new like Lula, but leaders that are coming that have a more um, social concern than um, the previous leaders in that um, in in that that matter. 
Um, in the point of view of uh, economic policies, I don't see so much a difference between all those governments. Uh, we we are seeing still governments that are have an agenda quite neoliberal, probably some of them uh, with a more social democratic approach. Um, and that we probably could see that happening now in Brazil. Um, so I would not say socialist. I would say governments that are more concerned about social causes and uh, about a more broader inclusion in participatory politics. Uh, but I would not classify or categorize them as socialist. So is that more of a drive, uh, perhaps from voters, just for leaders who are maybe able to meet of challenges of, of, of current times? Or is it still, I mean, you know, there's one of the things I found interesting is obviously Lula did win, but Bolsonaro was on, was it 49 point something yes. percent? It was very, very tight. And that doesn't suggest to me like a country that's politically uh, united, let alone, as we've said, sort of, you know, divisions within the government. And, and is that a, a similar across sort of South America? Yes, it was a phenomenon that we are observing quite uh, quite a lot around around the world in general. You no, know, it's this sort of elections that you have a quite narrow margin um, between one uh, and other candidates uh, when it comes to, to final definitions in in elections for presidents, for instance. So I think it, it represents a sort of um, a global context we are living, uh, and this is a big challenge. Biggest challenge, as I mentioned before, to all governments is to understand that they are being elected uh, democratically by the majority of the voters, but not necessarily by a massive majority of the population. So it's very different to govern when you are elected, as Lula was uh, the first time with 63% of the votes, and when you are elected with 50 comma something uh, of percent of the votes. So um, that's, that's, as I said, the challenge. It's to understand that you are governing to a country that almost half of it are not in favor of uh, of you as a, as governor. Yeah, yeah. It's, as you say, yeah, worldwide. I mean, we need some of that in Britain as well. Some of that understanding that uh, not all the population wants you there. Um, thank you, uh, Vinicius. It's been a, a joy to have you on the show. Thank you. And uh, the last question I wanted to ask you is just one that I ask all the guests on this with the hope of furthering good information, um, which is that, uh, you know, uh, apart from yourself and obviously the uh, the, the, the King's uh, Institute that you're part of, um, I just wondered uh, if there are any other writers, sites or or uh, anyone really that you would recommend listeners check out for Brazilian politics and maybe Latin American politics in general? Who are the people that you go to and trust? Thank you for this question and for, for the reference to our King's Brazil Institute at King's College London. Um, I also would like to call the attention for the, our newly uh, created Observatory of Democracy in Latin America. We are doing quite a lot of events and publications on topics related to consolidation of democracy in Latin America and also um, with proposals from policies in order to increase the, the democracy in Latin America. I would mention uh, my colleague uh, in Oxford University, Andresa de Souza Santos, who leads um, a program in Brazilian studies there as well, uh, who is a, a great, a great knowledge, knowledgeable person about Brazilian contexts. And as well as in UK, we have a good partnership and work together with Canning House. Um, we promote quite a lot of debates and discussions about contexts of Latin America and Brazilian, in particular, politics as well.
Big thank you to Venetius for that chat and also to Grace at the King's Brazil Institute for putting me in touch with him. The King's Observatory of Democracy in Latin America is launching properly later this month and so there isn't a direct web link yet but I have popped the link in the blurb to their Eventbrite page which lists upcoming events and their Twitter, you know, should that platform last the week. Um, that is at K-O-D-L-A. Venetius is also on Twitter at uh, Renna VMC, so R-E-N-N-A-V-M-C. Again, you know, should Twitter still be there by the time you finished listening to this? Should I even bother? Why am I bothering? Um, King's Brazil Institute is kcl.ac.uk forward slash Brazil. And, you know, again, oh, this is boring, is it? If it hasn't imploded in the next five minutes, at King's Brazil on Musk's broken new toy. I've actually got all of the guests lined up at the moment. Uh, more guests than you can shake a stick at, which I found is not a great way to keep guests. And actually, should you want them to come on the show, just put the stick down and ask nicely. That doesn't mean I don't want great recommendations, though. Go on, send over who I should do chats with. And you can do that at the Parpol Bro Facebook, Twitter for now, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that's it for another one of these here Partly Political Broadcast podcast things. Uh, before this gets all back up in your grill again on the Semaine Prochaine, then why not recommend its existence to others who like sounds in their lug holes, donate to the Kofi or Patreon if you can afford to help support my weekly slog in making this happen, and even if you can't do that, please give the show a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other places podcasts lurk in the dark. Thanks a bunch of bananas to Acast, my bro the last sceptic and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Rishi Sunak admits all the cabinet take his lunch money and he's just been too scared to tell anyone about it because they said if he did, they'd lock him in the cupboard until he weed himself. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Blame France. Got things wrong in your home that you can't be bothered to fix? Is that leaky roof an effort to just even think about? Try Blame France, a new initiative from the British government where for £63 million you can avoid doing anything about it at all. France will promise to look at pictures of roofs and maybe even fly a drone over yours before taking no other action. And when you're asked why there's still a bucket of rainwater in the living room, you can proudly say, ugh, bloody France. Blame France for when you could fix a problem but absolutely don't want to. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.